This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Francis, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Hannah Starr Rogers about her new book, The Routledge Handbook of Art, Science, and Technology Studies. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Hannah, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you've studied. Sure, sure. So um, my background is in science and technology studies, and my PhD is from Cornell University in the same subject. And my dissertation work was on the intersection of art and science, particularly art and biology. Um, after I finished my PhD, I went on to get an MFA from Columbia University. So my degrees are kind of in the opposite order with the PhD first because it was an STS. And then as I realized that in order to really be uh, accepted and credentialed in the art world, it was a good idea for me to have studied the arts directly. I went back um, and received my MFA. I'm currently a postdoc at the Medical Museum at the University of Copenhagen. Um, and so that's a particularly medical institution, but it has a really interesting and I think unique arm of research where they work with artists who are interested in medicine so that there's an art science component. And indeed, my specific Novo Nordisk funded position um, is related to looking at art and science, particularly metabolism. Amazing. Um, so you are currently in Copenhagen. That's right. Um, awesome. And um so is that where you wrote the book or where, where, where were you when you wrote the book or edited the book? Where did that, where did that process start? Well, you can see from the list of the other co-editors here, um, Megan Halpern, Delia Hanna, and Catherine DeRitter-Vidione, um, that this was really a group project for a long time. So all four of us were interested in what STS might have to say to the arts, but from different perspectives. Um, and so we wanted to put together a handbook, which was the book we sort of needed when we were in grad school, but didn't really exist at that time. Um, 
all of us have been out for several years now um, from graduate school. But at that time, um, when you said art in SDS, you usually meant visual products. You actually didn't mean the community of knowledge makers we think of now as artists. You meant scientists who either employed artists to make new kinds of images or the kinds of images and aesthetic strategies that scientists might be using in the laboratory or to communicate with the public. Um, and so we were looking for people who were artists in, a, in the sense of not just visual makers um, to think with in relation to SDS. Um, and Megan was in science communication, Delia was in philosophy, and Catherine was also in STS with me, but she especially was interested in nano images, issues of institutions, um, and how institutions worked with these images from the art side, from the science side, from government or funding sides, and how that was received by the public. And so since we all had kind of different takes on what ASTS might be, it was great for us to come together, hold an open call, and just see what was out there um, for work that might be of interest to us. So um, depending on who you ask, the project took four or five years um, to hold an open call to edit all the sections. It's a little bit different than some Rutledge handbooks because each of the sections is actually introduced by an editor um, because we're interested in suggesting to people that there's a lot more work to be done on in some of these areas. So um, we, for example, Megan edited a section for um, on collaborations, and oh, we could have populated that with many, many dozens of chapters, and so we had to really be selective and just pick four, um, but the introduction helps us point to some other possible um, collaborations and collisions that, that people in STS could take up and take a look at. Interesting. So how did um, this specific group of editors meet each other or start working together? It's a great question. I mean, the reality is we're friends. And we were friends because we were interested in these subjects. We were circulating papers to one another. Um, so, for example, Catherine was actually in my same program, and I was kind of following her around because she was thinking about nanoimages, and at that moment, nanotechnology was a central node in what was being funded in SDS. Um, Megan Halpern was in science communication, and so Catherine and I approached her, and I ended up writing a paper with her looking at some images in science communication and the way that we might think of how the arts could add to science communication as opposed to adding to STS. Um, but then it turned out she had a lot of STS interests, and so we fell in together. My meeting of Delia Hanna was a bit scarier. Um, we thought we might have the same dissertation subject. Indeed, we had some overlapping cases, and that's not something you want to hear during your dissertation, that somebody else has you know, the exact same subject that they were looking at, STS and art. Um, but immediately when I began to speak with Hannah, I realized, like, uh, with Delia, that I realized uh, we had more in common than just this name, Hannah, that was overlapping. Um, we had a lot of interest in common. But her work in the end was really going to be philosophical because her PhD would be accepted in a philosophy department and mine was really an STS project. And so there were plenty of differences. Um, and I hope we've exploited some of those in the book to show different angles on how you might think about these similar subjects. I love that. The interdisciplinary, the interdisciplinarity is very fitting. So I thought we could jump in now to some of the content of the book itself. So my first question is... Um, how do you define ASTS in relation to SDS? Oh, it's a great question. I think we're still finding out how that's going to work. I think one way of thinking about it is that STS, which comes off our tongue so quickly now, at one time was just science studies. And then it was realized that technology really had to be thought of. Um, new theories around techno science came forth. Um, and about the time this got settled and we were STS, 
folks came forward from innovation studies so that, for example, the University of Edinburgh program um, is STIS in order to include innovation. And I think um, that's a wonderful thing. The tent keeps getting bigger. The tools um, become more numerous. And I think this is the case um, in ASTS that there is certainly plenty of art science work which is not theorized by STS. And yet there's something really specific and special about thinking about the way that STS can help us understand power dynamics in the existing art science literature. Understanding that there's not just a history of art, but a history of science, for example, so that many of the reviewers naturally working in the arts look at these works um, and think of science as a content-oriented um, idea that, that there are some facts that are taken out um, of science and then applied in the arts. Um, and ASTS is interested in saying, no, no, wait, there's kind of a history to those facts. There's a history to those devices or materials you might be incorporating into artworks. Um, and so I think one of the things that ASTS does well is think about leveling some of those power dynamics. Um, and so it's really possible to imagine great theory that would be about art science that didn't involve STS. And of course, the organization Leonardo is really involved with a lot of projects. Um, people are thinking about histories of philosophy that deal with these two subjects or the way the subjects come together historically. Um, but STS can add a little something different about um, the idea that these are both knowledge communities or networks, as opposed to thinking of them as packages of information or simply a set of materials um, that we might kind of move back and forth between these two knowledge communities. So I don't think we know what ASTS is going to be yet. Um, I think there's still like a lot of potential for things to be fleshed out, but it certainly seems clear that there are a lot of people working in facilitation and curation, people who are already working in art science who are taking up STS to answer questions for themselves. Um, and so I think there's a lot of potential here um, to think about how arts might add to traditional STS, but also think about the way that STS um, can add special things to an art science dynamic. Hmm. And what, what kinds of things can, can STS add to an art science dynamic specifically? Well, so, um, for example, a number of the chapters in this book talk about moments where artists and scientists were brought together around an idea and that there are immediately problems with this, that either there are complications in the power dynamics um, so that the artist, for example, might be set up as um, serving the interest of what the scientists wanted, that people are looking for celebratory artworks um, that say, uh, hey, the human genome um, project is a really important and good project. So for example, um, we have this wonderful chapter um, about the pig's wings project from Symbiotica. And uh, this chapter basically tells the story of what happens if artists push back against that. If they're meant to do art science work or they're commissioned to do art um, in relation to science, and then they say, hey, I have a critique. What happens then? Um, in some quarters of the more traditional art science world, that really doesn't fly. Um, your, critiques aren't really seen as um, part of what they're aiming to do because the idea is art and science can like work together to produce new things, not that, that art should be critiquing science. Um, that's actually chapter 31, um, Yunette Zer and Oren Katz. And I, I think that by looking closely at this episode, we can see a, a number of different things about the power dynamics um, that STS scholars might face in trying to bring these two things, art and science, together. But we can also think about the way that artists might contribute new critical modes, which are very interesting to us in STS, um, but maybe we haven't really noticed before, that there are these other people who are outside um, of 
the humanities who are really interested in saying, what are some problems that I see in biotechnology in this case, or um, that I see in inclusion in physics, or that I see in the way that, um, say, race or gender are constructed in genetics? Um, th those kinds of questions, which are immediately, it's obvious why somebody who was in STS would be interested in them, are also being treated by this other group of people. And instead of arguing using text, they're really arguing using materials. And I think that opens a, a possibility for thinking about materials as another way um, that we might consider what critique could look like from STS. So on one hand, that we can better theorize the work that's being produced by artists. And on the other hand, that maybe STS scholars should be looking at um, material arguments a little more often. Could you talk a little bit more about how um, art and science can aid? Are there any ways in which they can aid each other in knowledge production? And any ways that they're ultimately incompatible? This is a really interesting question. Are these things actually interchangeable knowledge communities or are they not? Um, and this is the one part of the two cultures debate, which I have to say, framing them as cultures really makes sense to me, that they aren't in the end actually interchangeable any more than any other two cultures would be interchangeable. And yet there are features of the way that knowledge is affirmed, the way that people progress um, through their careers that really are quite similar. And so although these things are often posed as opposites, I think there are things we can learn about how knowledge is verified and practices are executed when we look across what's happening in art and what's happening in science. Um, in some of my own work, I've talked about um, projects made by Paul Venus and shown photographs of Paul working in the laboratory. And when you take a picture um, of Paul in an art gallery, um, the picture looks like it's something that was done in a science lab. He's working with gel electrophoresis. He's wearing a lab coat. We might think, hey, here we are in a laboratory. Um, but actually, even though these same materials are being used, the way that they function as a critique about how we should understand the DNA fingerprint in this case um, brings up a whole other set of STS issues about what the spaces are that are knowledge-making spaces for art and science, how they can be changed, what it is that separates this kind of performance from something that a scientist might do. And on top of that, um, you know, there's this wonderful book on DNA fingerprinting by Mike Lynch and a number of other um, articles concerning how we construct the DNA fingerprint on the STS side. And then here are these artists who are engaging some of the same questions and coming up, I think, with similar answers, albeit through a different method, a material method rather than a textual method. Hmm. That reminds me of a subsection of the introduction about ASTS method methods when you write, above all, ASTS aims to decentralize the written word as the paramount mode of expression. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the benefits of other modes of expression? Absolutely. I mean, I think we, we're to some degree still finding out what else it might be. I've been very focused on materials, but for example, Megan Halpern has worked a lot in performance. And so um, there, I think she would think more about actions um, in relation to this. Um, and then of course, there are folks working in design and conceptual design where there might not be an artifact or a material in the usual sense, but rather it's a conceptual material which maps really well onto things that we see going on in science. Um, so Latour has shown us a lot of things uh, about the way that we ought to think about images and the kind of centrality of being able to exchange images as part of how science is created. Um, 
And yet there's a way in which artists are engaged in materials too. Materials as evidence, materials as representation. Um, lots of things that we're used to seeing happen in a studio where, where materials become for the artist some other thing. This is also the case um, in laboratories where we, you know, one mouse comes to stand for many. Um, in fact, the mouse actually stands for a human or a, a set of cellular bodies in any case. And so there are these transferences and um, maybe a word like allegory explains it well, but there, there are these representation styles, the way that something represents something else that occur in art and occur in science that are perhaps a little less familiar to us um, in the humanities, perhaps in literature, um, you could find some examples, but that th this kind of correspondence or method means that artists and scientists sometimes have more in common with one another than their STS facilitators or humanities scholars. And that shared materials is something we've tried to go back to the well of several times in STS, kind of returning again and again to the idea that we ought to make materials more central. I'm not sure though, that we've really engaged materials as a method. Perhaps some folks who work in policy could say that they had made material changes um, through textual deliberation so that there was a material change in the world based on some ASTS scholarship. Um, I'm sorry, STS scholarship. But ASTS wants to say, hey, what would it be like if we actually tried to exact um, STS style critiques through material means? What could we make um, as curators? What could we facilitate um, as part of three-part collaborations between artists, scientists, and ourselves, which would really argue um, central ideas that we see in STS um, through some means besides the text, be that a performance or a sculpture um, or an assemblage of other objects, which might or might not have made that argument to begin with, but that curators assemble objects and, and make kind of a new argument, a new way of seeing those relationships. So interesting. Um, so are there any specific examples that come to mind um, that were either in your book or even not in your book that, um, that have really impacted you that do uh, art science projects that, that do centralize material? Sure. So um, we're really lucky that our publisher um, understood that we needed to have a lot of great color images for this project because um, the series we're in is sociology. Um, and so we were really asking for a lot for the number of photographs that we wanted to include of different artworks. So there's a whole section, section 10, that's the gallery that's just full color pictures of works that artists have done. So um, we have a nice section on Kathy High's work, Embracing Animal, where she was thinking about animal models. Um, Kathy thought about different types of diseases, which she herself um, has, that um, involved immunocompromised animals in the research to try to understand better those ailments. And so you see in the book um, this wonderful encounter between Kathy and one of these mice that's used in these laboratory studies just kind of face to face. Um, but there were a few different installations she did um, with these mice. Um, she built a wonderful house for them. Uh, and then they were freed in their um, house as, as part of the gallery installation. And she also treated them with homeopathic cures that she herself took. And so kind of turning around the kind of care that we give to animals when we're testing on them versus the kind of care that we might give them if we had, uh, in this case, intentionally allowed them to have these medical deficits. Um, and so I think thinks about, Kathy thinks about the subjectivity of those mice in a different way than we might usually think. Um, 
there's of course a huge literature on animal modeling. Um, but it's really different to have a book about animal modeling and to raise ethical issues around it versus to hold one of these animals that we have made changes to um, in order to benefit the health and well-being of other humans. That physical encounter is a different thing. And that's really the type of thing I have in mind when I say that there's something different to be learned from materials than from text. Of course, that's not to dismiss text. Kathy's written a ton about embracing animal. And of course, there were texts in the gallery to help people understand what it was they were seeing. Um, but I do think that those material encounters are quite different um, than a more general book about ethics, even if it contains interviews um, with, with people and what their feelings were about the use of animals, let's say, um, in these kinds of situations or the way that um, a technician or a scientist might feel about it, it's, it's still really different than actually encountering one of these mice. Um, totally. It sounds like kind of a, it's maybe more of a holistic approach to knowledge production. I think that's a nice way to think about it, that, that it tries to, um, it's no longer interested only in like isolating little divisions of logic about how scientists or technicians or even members of the public might have understood something um, that, it, that it offers, uh, you know, the embrace of experience, um, that swirl of things that are outside the enlightenment that um, Terry Eagleton talks about. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And um, so would you say that this is more a, a more democratized form of knowledge production? Are there um, potential political or social implications from centering material in art science projects? That is absolutely true. There is a politics to the material. Um, Certainly, the artworks I've been most interested in were those that were critical. And my monograph deals with this idea that um, there's like an inherent criticality involved in whether we name something as art or science, because there are surely examples of things that at one time and place were clearly art and another time and place, they seem so clearly science um, that I think we have a lot to learn from these kind of liminal objects that seem to be able to move. There's a ton of stuff that doesn't seem to move. And trying to understand why that is or why um, there might be a persistent notion of something as being part of an art or a science network is very interesting. And, and here, Trevor Pench is a great help to us. You know, uh, the social construction of technology and thinking about the layers that we put on technology that different groups kind of understand something as situated or stabilized um, as counting as art or science, um, I, th I think can help us think about that type of problem. Um, there are also certainly people in this community who want the work they're making to count as both. They want to produce something that is 
both art and science. Um, I'm thinking about Charlotte Jarvis's In Pose. Um, and in this project, Charlotte is attempting to make a female sperm. She wants to make chromosomal changes in a laboratory um, with her collaborator in Leiden, who's a fertility specialist, and really try to um, make something that's entirely out of her own DNA, um, but that would be expressed XY rather than XX. Um, and it's not really enough for Charlotte simply to have a great performance or an interesting installation. She actually wants to add something um, that her scientist collaborator could count as a publication. Um, it's, you know, both fronts have to be understood for her in order for it to be a successful project. Um, and I think this is another interesting thing to consider um, because we primarily in STS have thought about that the things that scientists were producing in laboratories were coming out in some types of science journals. And if it was something different than it was science communication, it was about marshalling future resources for other work by convincing a public um, that your work was important or helping them to understand that work. Um, and here's a group of practitioners who seem to have a different set of goals but gosh, their practices and materials look awfully familiar for us. Um, so I think we ought to take that idea that they're trying to contribute to, to communities really seriously and, and see what we could learn from that. Hmm. Um, so I love that, that she's engaging in science to also critique, to, to also critique it. It's like from, from the inside. Um, I'm wondering as well how, so I think that like, through STS, we have a really good grasp on definitions of science. How, how, how are we defining art in ASTS? Great question. So I was saying earlier that we want to think a little bit more broadly than just visual material, that for some people, even some people in STS, the thing that immediately comes to mind when they think are, are visual materials, the classic being painting, a lot of, um, for example, the, the critiques that Thomas Kuhn launches about art, he seems to think primarily of sculpture and painting as kind of the models for that. And most of the people I'm talking about are contemporary artists who are working in installations. Um, there surely are all kinds of people working in different areas, but the examples I've given you are in this area. And so because art is such a big, diverse place, uh, because science is such a big, diverse place, I think it's more helpful to say things like, I'm looking at installation artists who work with biotechnology. That tells you a lot more than I'm looking at an art science project. And indeed, the, in, the institutional framing, for example, when money is set aside uh, by university to do multidisciplinary work, so we're looking for an artist and a scientist to work together, sometimes those very large categories are actually an impediment to getting down to the content. And it's really helpful to have a project that already has a theme related to it. So you have an artist who comes forward who is already excited about metabolism and knows that they want to work with a metabolic scientist. Um, so deciding about that specificity on one hand um, is like useful as a, a theoretical construct for us to kind of break down uh, into more detail what's happening in ASTS, but it's also useful on the making side um, to, to say, hey, look, uh, this isn't just about bringing these two areas together. We really want to make something, contribute something, think about what it means to think together about some particular subject. Hmm, totally. Um, what has what has art added to to science in in these kind of exhibits? What can art do that that science can't do alone? That's very interesting too. So. Um, I recently had curated an exhibit called Arts Work in the Age of Biotechnology, and that was actually being done um, at North Carolina State University for the Genetic Engineering and Society program. 
Uh, and so they are very interested in the ways that art might add something to bringing new audiences into thinking about genetic engineering, futures in genetics. Um, and I think there are different ways of picturing what that engagement might be. And, and I think actually the people doing this particular project were pretty sophisticated about what those possibilities were. But it is possible to imagine a group of scientists who really think, hey, we'll bring an artist and they'll kind of celebrate what it is we're doing. They'll think about new ways to make it more beautiful. They'll communicate it more clearly because they will have you know, access to aesthetic tools that the scientists can't even dream of. Um, but I think that's probably the least useful thing that artists can really add. A different way of thinking about the subject, a different way of conceiving about what the subject's context is, and really reaching people you know, through the imagination that only an artist has access to, to kind of quote Natalie Jeremy Janko on this, um, seems like the th useful thing an artist can do. We don't want a situation really in which information is conveyed to the artist and they become an illustrator. We want them to engage in a new way the possible futures of these science subjects. Um, you can ask an artist to produce a piece that shows you how big nano is, but it's much more interesting to have them think about what the future of nano might look like, what the philosophical, historical, anthropological, sociological aspects of that future might be. And they can do that more clearly. Um, they, they have kind of more success in this. And, and in that way, they're similar to STS scholars because it's always about the culture of science. Um, and I think this matter of culture is really what it is that artists can offer in a, an example like uh, thinking about biotechnology at this North Carolina exhibit. Totally. So I love that, that it's not always just the artist's role is not necessarily just the proliferation of the science findings. They can also be an active participant in creating science. That's um, really right. And, you know, we've understood for a long time that our technicians made knowledge. And artists have often been illustrator or photography technicians for scientists. But I think... Um, we're just really beginning to think about the ideas that were added um, by artists, it, technicians as well, and kind of expanding those people who we grant the right to say, hey, you helped to make science, you created knowledge. Right. Um, so I know you mentioned the um, artist scientist who I'm, I'm blinking on the name, but that that is working on creating sperm cells out of um that's working on producing sperm cells. Are there any more artists or projects that come to mind that that do that that are um, being created by an artist who's also a scientist? So I should clarify that although Charlotte Jarvis has a ton of technical skills now, um, that she still has a, a scientific collaborator, Susana Shova de Sousa Lopez, um, who is at University of Leiden. And without the access to that laboratory, I think her work would be pretty tough, even though she has a really deep understanding of the technical aspects of it. This issue of laboratories and how to get a chance to work in them um, has been a really interesting unfolding over the last 25 years in STS. There have been lots of good studies of DIY biology and other STEM and maker spaces um, where people both facilitated those as SDS scholars, but also looked at them, looked at what you could learn from them. And artists have faced the same problem as equipment's become more sophisticated, um, as different political changes have meant it was harder uh, to get into certain types of laboratories. 
as ethical systems for the use of animals and human cells have become more robust, it's been increasingly difficult for people to participate. And artists have had lots of different solutions to this. Sometimes that solution is a dear friendship and a good funding application, but sometimes um, it's actually to go out and make a laboratory that they can work in by themselves. And I was mentioning earlier, these artists at Symbiotica and the Pig's Wings Project. Um, that's a wonderful laboratory at the University of Western Australia in what used to be the School of Human Anatomy, but in any case, continues to be a kind of biological specific context. Um, that's a wet lab for artists. And so there's a place to really go and practice um, some of these projects when you need relatively sophisticated equipment. Um, of course, there have also been these legal problems people have faced, the famous case of Critical Art Ensemble and Steve Kurtz, um, where it was discovered that he had materials which were mistaken for some sort of weapon um, in his home. Um, and so because he had these biological supposedly weapon-seeming materials, he wound up um, in a, a very long legal battle. Um, and so we can really see that there's a great deal of politics in having access to these types of materials. And the artists have special needs with regard to um, getting the right kind of labs going. So that space of democratizing people's access to laboratories is certainly something artists have benefited from. And it's something that they've, in some cases, you know, founded um, new places where other people could have access to these materials. At the same time, some people really feel that a lot of this artwork is esoteric, um, that it's really made only for scientists. How could anybody else really understand uh, all the details of, of what people are doing? I think this really undersells the audience. I think viewers do have the ability to understand it. And the notion that something is complex should make us afraid to show that artwork. Um, complexity, uh, you know, is what these trappings I was talking about before are about. You know, it's not really understanding that, hey, that's a pipette um, and that's blood and kind of this person's going to make female sperm out of it. The, the idea isn't to end there. We're not trying to demonstrate, um, you know, like growing things in agar. That's that's not really the point. The point is to think broadly about um, the cultural trappings. You know, what does it mean to say that there would be a female sperm? What does this mean when we think about what sex and gender are? What does this mean um, about a history of centering the sperm as a life force? Um, those kinds of questions are the things that are meant to be brought forward much more than the technical aspects of exactly how you would uh, draw blood and, you know, work toward human created stem cells. Totally. I love that answer. Um, so are there any, or actually I'll ask you first, if you could talk a little bit more about your 2017 exhibit arts work in the age of biotechnology, I know you mentioned it before, but if you could just give us a, um, maybe an overview of some of the other, uh, art science projects that were on display. Sure. So that was a, a long project that concluded during COVID. Um, it was held in a couple of different locations at the um, at NCSU, um, including the North Carolina Museum of Art, where there was a wonderful corn maze led by Molly Renda. And they were thinking there about hybridized corn versus teosinte. And so you went through this hybridized corn maze into the center in a kind of a meditative way um, to, to the center, which had this bed of Teosinte, the kind of original uh, foreparent of corn. Um, and I thought that was a really exciting project because it also had a VR experience that was accessible in the art museum at campus. And so there were kind of a couple of different ways to think about the physical experience of corn um, and then this more mediated experience, but, but I think 
um, like offering you something slightly different to do a corn maze uh, in a VR. Um, that project spanned over a couple of years because the first physical instantiation of it was in North Carolina. And then at the University of Pittsburgh, we had an on an all online version. And you can still check that out at um, artsworkintheageofbiotechnology.org. And there it, the pandemic had come. And so we had to think about how would we have digital programming um, as well as digital pieces. And there are a couple of interesting ones there. Um, if you wanted to just kind of pick out one to take a good look at, I think Rich Pell's film, um, which uses stereoscopic images um, stacked together so that um, you use 3D glasses and you take a look at your computer screen um, and you see these historical images which have been brought into a kind of fiction film context, which as it goes on, turns out not to be totally fictional um, because it's about the idea that there might be a relationship between AI and central planning um, and then what happens with climate change. And so all of those subjects are things that I think we regularly think about as major subjects at this moment in STS, but here's an artist um, treating those possibilities and doing it through historical materials, you know, these real old um, stereoscopic images. And so there we have a, an already digital engagement, but it starts from um, this kind of history technology materials. Indeed, all, a lot of these projects um, for arts work in the age of biotechnology had a history component. Um, returning to the Imposé female sperm idea, um, there was a film that went along with the installation. And the film was a, a kind of an associative reenactment of the Thesmophoria Festival, which was a women-only fertility ritual um, in ancient Greece. And so the project is kind of inspired by a much older history that really has to be taken into account in order to understand the piece completely. Um, so I think we could say that people who are doing art science work are often reaching back for historical or philosophical materials to bring forward, which again, should only interest us in STS. And what, what is the value in reaching back? to bring forward historical ideas or materials. It's a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? That this, this subject that interests us all in STS so much um, might be something that just comes out for people when they start to look closely at how they might understand a new science or a new technology. And trying to situate um, art science projects, if you're only gonna use a history of art, I, I think ultimately is um, pretty limited the artists themselves grasp at these other kinds of historical uh, modes. They grasp at other devices that might have been used prior to the device that they are looking at. Um, and because they're situating themselves in these histories of science and histories of technology, it's a really great place to be bringing in um, our own ideas about STS. It's my experience that artists often know an awful lot, much more than I do, about the history of the particular object or episode that they're looking at, but frequently don't actually place this in a broader um, context of what else is going on at that moment um, in science or in the history of technology. And I think that's something we can really bring to bear on their work that we can be helpful to the kind of work that they're doing. And we also can more fully theorize the artworks they're making, because though they might know everything there is to know about um, yeah, the creation of incubators and um, their beginnings at Coney Island, they might not have thought that much about how this works um, as a, a technology that then is moved on into other areas of science. It might be things that they wanted to reflect on. So 
I think we can be helpful to them and also um, for our own purposes, more fully theorize their work because of our knowledge of um, history or the history of science, particularly. Hmm. Totally. Um, so, okay. So I love hearing about the art science projects. I think it's so interesting to hear you describe them. Um, are there any other art science projects that, um, you know of that are, that are coming up that are being created now or that are just coming out that have been done, uh, after the book, uh, was written? So many. So because our open call was now, um, you know, three and a half or four years old, there are so many wonderful new projects in this area really just being created every day. Um, maybe I will highlight um, two artist designers who I'm really interested in at this moment, Baum and Leahy. Um, they were actually included in Arts Work in the Age of Biotechnology, and they're interested in the microbiome. And they're interested in how they could think about the subjective experience of the gut and what you already know yourself about the gut. And so um, for that exhibition, they created this wonderful meditation, which both asks you about your own bodily experience of stomach and what's going on um, inside your body in the microbiome, and then also has an educational component that might be associated with some more traditional art science works where they mention specific facts that we now know about the microbiome from a science point of view, um, so that you kind of come away from this with this mixture of things that, that aren't um, blurred to the point that you can't separate them. You can kind of identify which things um, they say in the meditation, which might be more on uh, the subjective art experience side and which things are kind of on the science end of things or the facty informational end of things. Uh, and I think this is a very satisfying project in part because it doesn't try to blend the thing completely. And yet it says both of these things are important to the modern viewer. So viewer, you know, um, I'd like you to close your eyes, um, think about the things that are coming out of my mouth about the microbiome. Um, and then they, if you experience the piece in person, they actually ask you to lie on the floor with these wonderful little pillows that they've made that are meant to kind of evoke um, the idea of microbes or you know, consinuously shaped. Um, and so you can have this experience as a digital experience during the pandemic or as an in-person experience. And I just think that there's a lot to that of bringing these two areas together in something that is satisfying that, you know, an eight-year-old can listen to it and learn something uh, and an STS scholar can listen to it and learn something too. I love that. So I'm looking at the clock. I have taken up a lot of your time at this point. Um, my last question is, what is next for you post Root Ledge Handbook of Art Science and Technology Studies? Are you working on anything currently? Are you looking towards anything? Thanks for asking that. My monograph, Art Science and the Politics of Knowledge from MIT Press, will come out in May. And so I'm looking forward to having that book out in the world. That book um, is four case studies, beginning with the Blaschka glass models. Um, we might know about the Harvard glass flowers, but um, this chapter looks at the fact that there was a point in time when we thought of these objects as really being scientific representations that um, institutions around the world were commissioning little jellyfish and wonderful marine creatures um, that were hard to stabilize in glass. Um, and that these 
models later are celebrated as art objects, as examples of, of craftsmanship from the Art Nouveau period. And thinking about what changes around these, you know, relatively stable objects um, that makes them so clearly in one context science and so clearly art in another um, is the subject of the first case. And then I work all the way up through um, some current projects in bioart um, and the laboratory I was mentioning earlier at Symbiotica. So um, it'd be great if people wanted to check out this book when it comes in May. Awesome. Well, I am certainly looking forward to it. Um, well, thank you so much, Hannah, for being on the show. That was such a pleasure speaking with you and so interesting. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.